How's that? <laughs> yeah, I love it. I love it. Snow covers everything up. Yeah, even the shovel. I learned uh, this, this snowstorm to put the shovel away. Otherwise, when you go looking for the shovel, it's hard to tell which lump it is. <laughs> but we found it. It all worked out okay. All right, as we take a look, Exodus chapter 31, beginning in verse 1, it says, Now, then the Lord spoke to Moses and said, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And we just touched on this a little bit last week. The point is, after giving all the instructions for all the tabernacle, God had a specific man chosen by name to do the work. A man chosen by name, given the artistic ability to make all those implements. That's why we, I shared last week, if you go to the Temple Institute in Jerusalem, they're all made again. The Ark of the Covenant's not there, but everything else, all the other implements are made. And you look at them and you, you can ask them, is this what it looked like before? And they'll tell you, we don't know. We go by the basic measurements that were given, but the artistic ability, how did it look? How was it designed? How, how did it function? How was it put together? That part, we don't know. And so Bezalel, this guy, he's called specifically by God for what? For the purpose of the workmanship that he had to do that work. And I think about the church here, Calvary Chapel Buell, and all the blood, sweat, and tears that went in to putting this church together, putting the walls up, doing the drywall, doing the paint and herb, crawling around on ladders and, and, and changing the lights, guys getting together and, and fixing the different things that go wrong within the church. And you look at all those things, and you need to realize that you, like Bezalel, are called by name. You're given a gift, the gift that, that you're able to, to, whether it's work wood, do tile, or, or carve like it was for Bezalel, work with beaten gold, put all those things together. He was called of God to be the foreman. He's the guy in charge. He's the guy with the vision. He's a guy from the tribe of Judah, verse 3 says, And I filled him with all the Spirit of God in wisdom, in understanding, in knowledge, and in all manner of workmanship, to design artistic works, to work in gold and silver and bronze, in cutting the jewels for setting and carving the wood, and to work in all manner of workmanship. So first he calls his number one guy. This is a foreman, okay? This is a guy that's going to be in charge of doing all the work. Doesn't mean he's going to do it all himself, but he's got the plan. He's got the vision. He knows how everything goes together. Then look. And indeed, I have appointed with him Aholiab, the son of Ahisamach, from the tribe of Dan, and I have put wisdom in the hearts of all the gifted artisans that they may make all that I have commanded you. So not only do you have Bezalel, but then you have Aheliab, who is the second. So you got like the foreman and his assistant. Bezalel, he's the guy who's going to go forward. He's got the vision. He's the one God's given the, the concept to. Aheliab, he comes in, and he is, if you will, the second fiddle, the second in command, the second guy. And he's going to do uh, all the things that he needs to do to help Bezalel. And then the scripture also said God had gifted all the gifted artisans. So you got Bezalel in charge, Heliab second, and then everybody else who would come and pitch in. And they were all specifically gifted by God to do the work of building the tabernacle, of putting all those things together. The question was once asked, what's the, the hardest 
a position to feel in an orchestra. And they say it's first chair, uh, second violin. Because you're right up in front, but you're not the main guy. You're the, you're the second guy, the, the second guy back. And to find someone who's willing to fulfill that role, who does that part within the orchestra, which helps the first violin stick out. And that's what Aholiab or Heliab does for Bezalel. That's what he's doing as he comes along as the second to help get things going, to make things happen, to, to enable them to do this perfect work. So they're given uh, this job. Verse 7, the tabernacle of meeting, the ark of the testimony, the mercy seat that is on it, and all the furniture of the tabernacle, the table, its utensils, the pure gold lampstand and its utensils, the altar of incense, the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils, the labor and its base, the garments of ministry, the holy garments for Aaron the priest, the garments of his son to minister his priest, the holy anointing oil, the sweet incense for the holy place, According to all that I have commanded you, they shall do. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak also to the children of Israel, saying, Surely my Sabbath you shall keep. So first he lays out, here's the guys for the job. Moses, I'm telling you who your foreman is. Moses, I'm going to tell you who his assistant is. I've given gifts to all the folks to do the various work as he lays it out. And then he says, right here, you want to mark this. If you, if you like to write in your Bibles, he lays out for us that the Sabbath is a statute between God and the, and the children of Israel forever. He says in this next verse, listen, speak also to the children of Israel saying, surely my Sabbath you will keep for it is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. So he says to the nation of Israel, this is between me and you. Later on, Paul's going to write in the New Testament to us, let no one judge you according to Sabbaths or new moons or feasts. He's going to lay out for us that every day is an acceptable day to seek the Lord, to go before the Lord, and that in Christ Jesus, he is our Sabbath. The Sabbath was for rest, right? The Sabbath was a point of rest. And so the Sabbath becomes that place of rest so that they would find rest in that day. Our rest is in Christ Jesus. The scripture lays out for us here that that deal is between God and the nation of Israel, between you and me forever. In fact, the scripture would tell us in the book of Matthew that when we're looking at the tribulation period, what? To pray that that day doesn't come on the Sabbath. Why? Does the Sabbath really change anything in the United States? If you're on the Sabbath, nothing, it's all the same. If you're in Israel on the Sabbath, you know what happens? It's a little bit crazy. For example, let's say that there was a fire in the hotel on the Sabbath. And you were not smart enough to take the stairs. And you went and got into the elevator. Do you know how an elevator works on the Sabbath day? It stops at every floor. So you don't have to push a button, because if you push a button, that's work. So the Shabbat elevator automatically stops on every single floor all the way. Take you forever to get any place. You have to be careful what elevator you're getting in on the on the Sabbath. They do actually have elevators for Gentiles. Good news, so that you can go straight to your floor because you don't mind pushing a button. On the Sabbath day. So the point of the, of the scripture is 
God lays out for the children of Israel. This is between you and me forever. This is a sign between your people and me that I am the Lord, that he is the one to whom they sacrifice. And that's the, the, the point that he's, that he's making and that he's laying out. Verse 14, you will keep the Sabbath, therefore, for it is holy to you. It is holy to you, to the nation of Israel. Everyone who profanes it shall surely be put to death. For whoever does any work on it, that person shall be cut off from among his people. Now again, the Lord laying out the, the ideals for the Sabbath says that you're not supposed to work. You and I, whenever we read the scripture, the best way for us to understand the scripture is literal. So when we look at that, we say that God doesn't want us to do any work. Then the Sanhedrin got together and they wrote in the, the Mishnah, the, the writings on the law, exactly defining what work was. That's where all the rules and regulations came that Jesus himself broke because it wasn't God's law, it was man's law taught as the commandments of, of God. So they, in the definition of work, decided what work was. You and I, the bottom line is, folks, pushing a button in an elevator is not work. That's not work. Unless my job is sitting in an elevator and pushing buttons for people. Then maybe that could be construed as work. But otherwise, that's not work. We know what work is. And they made all these rules and regulations then that only the Pharisees would be able to, to, to keep. And when we come to the Mashiach Nagid, the Messiah, walking uh, Jesus Christ on earth over and over and over again, they accused him of breaking the Sabbath. When he did what? When he healed. When he healed. Yet Jesus said, if your donkey fell down in a pit on the Sabbath day, you take him out. But I can't heal a man with a withered hand. So man took these and twisted, it, uh, twisted the concept that the Lord was, was putting together. He says in verse 15, further uh, defining for us the Sabbath. Work shall be done for six days, but the seventh is the Sabbath of rest. Holy unto the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day, he shall surely be put to death. Who is God talking to here? Moses. Who is he talking to? The nation of Israel. This was a, a uh, commitment that God was requiring of the nation of Israel. Still is that way to this day. Why? Because the nation of Israel would not receive their Messiah, and so they would not enter into the rest. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 tells us that God was not pleased with all those people wandering through the wilderness because they wouldn't enter into the promised land. You remember? They're not going to enter into the promised land. Why? Because of unbelief. So they won't enter into rest. And so the Sabbath becomes a perpetual uh, commitment between the nation of Israel and God. Until such a day, as we'll see, Zechariah begins to tell us about it and other prophets, when they will look upon him whom they have pierced and mourn for him as one mourns for their only son. When they recognize Jesus Christ as their Messiah, the Sabbath will be complete. But until that time, it's not going to be complete. And so they don't see the significance of that Sabbath rest. You and I, in Christ Jesus, we have that rest. That's why 1 Corinthians 10 says, Let us not be like those who through unbelief never entered into rest. We want to enter into rest. That rest is in Christ Jesus, found in Him. In Jesus Christ. He is our Sabbath. And so... 
as, a, as he lays this out, we want to keep in mind, as we look at this section of Scripture, who's talking? God. To who? Moses. Given a, a command for the people of Israel, to them, that they would keep. He goes on, Therefore the children of Israel, verse 16, shall keep the Sabbath to observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as a perpetual covenant. God always desired His people to rest in Him. And so, He continues to give him the, them this picture that they might find their rest in Him. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. Do you see it again? The Sabbath is a sign for who? Between God and the children of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day He rested and was refreshed. And when he had made an end of speaking with him on Mount Sinai, he gave Moses two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. How incredible would it be to find those? What's God's handwriting look like? He wrote the two tablets written on the front and the back. We'll see that in a moment. With the finger of God. The very finger of God. Moses is going to go down the mountain with those tablets. Chapter 32 begins, Now when the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, the people gathered together with Aaron and said to him, Come, make us gods that shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Folks, this to me is the main problem anytime someone rejects the doctrine of imminence. What is the doctrine of imminence? The doctrine of, the doctrine of imminence states for you and I that Jesus Christ could come back at any time. The scripture indicates 21 different times that either Paul or Peter or James, they all expected Christ to return during their lifetime. They spoke as though Jesus could return at any time. What's the point behind that? Because if we believe Jesus can return any time, then we will stay diligent. What happened to the children of Israel? They didn't believe Moses was coming back, did they? Forty days. That's how long Moses was gone. That's not near as long as Christ's been gone. Forty days, Moses was gone, and already the people thought, well, he's not coming back. And what did they do? Did they, did they continue to move forward following the Lord? Did their hearts stay focused after him? No. As soon as an opportunity presented itself, they were ready to fail, to fall. You see, Jesus told a story about a wicked servant. He said, a wicked servant said in his heart that my master delays his coming. That's exactly how they started this phrase in chapter 32. Moses delayed his coming. So in it, I see the danger of when we start to think, well, you know what? Jesus can't return until whatever happens. Because that's not taught in the scripture. In the scripture, we're taught that he could come at any time. That no man will know the time, the day or the hour. That Jesus Christ, nothing is withholding his ability to return. 
And so we want to be looking unto him. What, did it, what is it that the scriptures say? That those who love his appearing, who spend every day looking for his appearing, they will receive the crown of life when Jesus Christ returns. At whatever point that is, what is to mark our life? That we look for him every day. The children of Israel, they said Moses delays his coming. And it got him into trouble, didn't it? Because what happened? Pretty soon it wasn't so important their walk. It wasn't so important their relationship with God. Now it was more important what kind of fun they could have. What kind of stuff they could do. So because that wasn't a, a, a point of eminence with them. When Moses comes down, I want to be doing what I'm supposed to be doing. That wasn't important to them. So when Moses came down, where did he find them? Around a golden calf, right? So the scripture first lays this out. Delayed their coming. So the people gather to Aaron and they say, Come, make us gods. Make us images. Now I believe that the people tried to sell this in a point of fact saying, Give us something that we can worship. Because later on, as we look, we're going to see that Aaron is going to call the golden calf Yahweh. The covenantial name of God. The Yahweh, the, the Jehovah, whatever you want to call the name, the impronounceable name of God. He's going to call the golden calf that. It's like they're saying, well, we're going to give us a symbol of, of who God is, and that's what we're going to worship since Moses isn't here and, and, and he's delayed his coming. So, so they're, going to take, they're going to take and make a graven image. Forty days earlier... Almighty God, speaking from Mount Sinai, had told them what? It's okay to have graven images? No, you shall make no graven images. Forty days? Folks, I don't care how hard you try. If you were standing outside and Almighty God spoke to you, Ten Commandments, you forget that in forty days? I don't know. I don't know if, if that's the kind of thing that's going to exit my mind. But what I do know is, as soon as they thought Moses ain't coming back, we can do whatever we want to do, immediately they fell into sin. Immediately they fell into a place that they ought not to have been. And listen to the, the derision in the voice of the people. That Moses... Who brought us out of, this is not a term of respect. They're not talking about a man that they, that they cared so much for. That's a, the, the, the language is, a, is an ideal of derision. They're not thinking great things about Moses. Why? Who, who put him in charge anyway? He's going to battle that the whole time he leads the children of Israel, isn't he? He's going to deal with that the whole time through. We don't know what happened to him. So look what Aaron does. Aaron, Moses who was called by God to be the what? The number one, just like Bezalel, right? Moses is the leader. Who was his second? Aaron. So Aaron is his second. What's he going to do? Is he going to get these people back on track? Is he going to have Moses back? This is not the shining moment for Aaron. Aaron says, Break off the golden earrings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people broke off the gold earrings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand, and listen to this, he fashioned it with an engraving tool and made a molded calf. And they said, this is your God, O Israel. 
that brought you out of the land of Egypt. The psalmist would say that if you can make an idol, an idol that can't speak, can't see, can't smell, you will become like that idol. Stupid. And that's how the people have become, isn't it? Here, let's make this. And then they look at this golden calf that they just fashioned with their own hands. This is the God that took us out. Where was he? In the shadow. I don't want you to lose sight of this. In the shadow around them, you have the pillar of fire. You have the cloud, the Shekinah glory of God. A mountain erupted with fire and smoke and cloud cover all over the mountain. The presence of God can be seen. All they got to do is lift up their heads. But they don't have their heads lifted up. They have their heads down. And so they make a decision. And it's important that you realize who fashioned it. Aaron fashioned it. This is important later. He fashioned it with an engraving tool. Did this golden calf just magically appear? No. Yeah, he will. That's how, that's how, our, how stupid our lives are, aren't they? God see right through them. So Aaron fashioned this. He fashioned it. He used an engraving tool on it. So when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. Now I want you to look at your Bibles. That, that word Lord is capital L-O-R-D. That is the covenantial name of God. The impronounceable name of God. The Y-H-V-H. Uh, the Tetragrammaton, call it anything you want. Uh, some people read it as Jehovah, others as Yahweh, doesn't matter, we're probably all wrong. The point is, this is a covenantial name of God, and Aaron is ascribing the covenantial name of God to a golden calf. The Lord said, make no graven images. No graven images. Don't, get, don't start falling into the trap. Don't start falling into the trap to what's going on in verse 6 and they rose early on the next day and they offered burnt offerings and they brought peace offerings and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play that phrase rose up to play indicates sexual immorality not like they were throwing a ball around there was something else going on they rose to play and we're gonna it's gonna build on that concept in a moment but anytime we're able to when we look at the scriptures like this it's always best if we'll allow the scriptures to provide commentary so as you got your fingers here turn with me to acts chapter 7 because in acts chapter 7 we come in contact with this fellow named stephen and stephen gives israel a history lesson prior to his stoning Uh, beginning in verse 38 of chapter 7. This is he who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai with our fathers, the one who received the living oracles to give to us, this Moses, whom our fathers would not obey but rejected. And in their hearts they turned back to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make us gods to go before us. As for this Moses who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. 
And they made a calf in those days, offered sacrifices to the idol, and rejoiced in the works of their hands. Then God turned and gave them up to worship the host of heaven, as it was written in the book of the prophets. Did you offer me slaughtered animals and sacrifices during 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tabernacle of Moloch, the star of your God, Rephan, images which you made to worship, and I will carry you away beyond Babylon. They made a golden calf. The picture of the god Molech, perhaps you've heard the god Molech, where the children of Israel would offer their children up as burnt offerings, was a calf, a cow. Horns made of bronze or brass with arms outstretched on whom they would lay their children. And Stephen says in Acts chapter 7 that the work, what was taking place with the children of Israel was an outright rebellion and rejection of Almighty God. It's not a rejection of Moses. It's not a rejection of his leadership. It's a rejection of God. And he says it was then that they turned their hearts away from God and toward Molech. And so they're, and that's going to be a struggle for them from here on through. All the way through until after Babylon. After Babylon, it stops being a struggle. They, they kind of break the whole idol worship deal in their 70 years of captivity. So this is what's taking place here. So when we go back and we read it, it's not just a little, they were confused or they didn't understand. No, they knew what they were doing. They were rejecting God. And it's a big problem for Moses when he comes down the mountain. So look what happens. Now the Lord said to Moses, Go get down, for your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. You ever been around a husband and wife when their children become your children? You know what your son did? I've never heard that from Kathy, but I have said that to her. I have often thought, whenever our kids are rotten, that it was something from her background that brought that out in them. Could not possibly be me. So they would become her children. Look at what God's doing to Moses. Your people that you brought out of Egypt. God is saying to Moses, they're not mine, they're yours. And I think in some respects, this is one of the biggest tests that Moses is ever going to face. Because God is going to make an offer to Moses right here. God is going to make Moses an offer. He says in verse 8, They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. They have made themselves a molded calf and worshipped it and sacrificed to it. And said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and indeed... It is a stiff-necked people. They're going to be known for that their entire existence. To this day, still known as a stiff-necked people. Stubborn. Stubborn. Not ever seeming to want to get on track and go the right direction. This is what the Lord lays out for them. Now, therefore, he says... Let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I will consume them, and I will make of you a great nation. See God talking to Moses? 
Moses, these people are lousy, good for nothing, stiff-necked. They don't listen. They don't do what I tell them to do. Moses, you just stay right here. Don't worry about it. I'm going to wipe them out, and I'm going to start over again with you. That's a pretty big test for Moses, isn't it? He's offering Moses a chance to become the new Abraham. He's offering Moses the opportunity to wipe out all them people who spend all their time complaining about him anyhow. He's given him the opportunity to say, Moses, I'm going to make a great nation of you. We're going to forget about them. We're going to turn our back on them. We're going to start all over again. And I think it's cool that Moses is going to pass the test. I think it's cool that Moses' heart, his desire was that he would, he, he cared about the people. The same people that, that, that were rejecting him and didn't want to have him as a leader, the same people that complained about him, he cared about them. He honestly, officially, it, it mattered to him. He cared about them. And so Moses pleaded and said with the Lord his God, Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against... See, Moses gives the people back to him. Your people. Your people, God. Whom you brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand. Why should the Egyptians speak and say he brought them out to harm them, to kill them in the mountains, to consume them in the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce wrath and relent this harm of your people. What is he appealing to? The goodness of God. He's not asking for justice. He's asking for what? Grace. Mercy. Grace. Funny that we're seeing grace in the Old Testament, isn't it? Book of Exodus. I thought grace was just a New Testament principle. But you know, God's immutable. He doesn't change. He still worked in grace even then. And here we see Moses appealing to God's goodness and his grace. And then this is important because this concept is what helps us understand our own security in our salvation. Look. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven, and all this land that I have spoken of, I will give your descendants, and they shall inherit it forever. That's the Abrahamic covenant that God spoke to Abraham. It is an unconditional covenant. It did not require anything of Abraham or his children. It was a promise that was all conceived and upheld within God. It was an I will covenant, not if you, I will. So this was a promise that God made to the nation of Israel, to Abraham, or to the nation of Israel through Abraham. So the Lord relented from harm, which he said he would do to his people. Moses passed the test. Moses passed the test. God laying out before Moses, hey, this is what I'm offering you. I'm offering you a chance to be the man. They are all going to come from you. We're going to wipe them out. But listen, Moses says, no, Lord, look, this is your promise to Abraham. Unconditional promise you gave him. If God would have broke his word to Abraham, what security is there for you? Because God kept his word, now there's great security for you. Because the same promise, folks, that God made to Abraham, he gives to us an unconditional promise in the new covenant. In Jeremiah chapter 31, the I will covenant of God, as he said, I will, 
I will write my laws on your heart. I will that the new covenant brought to us through the blood of Jesus Christ is an unconditional covenant. It is not based on our performance. It is based in God on His promise. We receive that promise through faith. We are justified by that faith. We are sanctified by a work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Sanctification means God is working not to keep us in sin, but that we might become holy day by day. But we're justified, made just as if we'd never sinned, based on our faith in Jesus Christ. And so you and I can say when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, I know in whom I have believed, and I am persuaded He keeps me. That's the work of an unconditional covenant. It is God that keeps us. It is God that holds us in His hands. And Jesus would say that no one could snatch us out of His hands. And His Father, who is greater than all, holds us in His hands, around the hands of Jesus. And no one can snatch us out of His Father's hands. Why? Because the covenantal promise that God made was unconditional in the new covenant. That's important, we see, because God keeps his promise to the nation of Israel. When people get off track and they start to develop what's known as replacement theology, and they say, God has said, forget Israel, I'm done with them. And the church has replaced Israel. Then what's to stop God from saying, forget the church? Then it becomes performance-related. It never was. We've been grafted in. And the scripture indicates, Paul would write in Romans 9, 10, and 11, if we were grafted in, how much easier will it be for God to graft in the natural branch, the nation of Israel? God's not done with Israel. He will fulfill every promise. You know what one of those promises are? One of those unconditional promises? The Davidic covenant, when God said to David that Someone of his lineage, of his line, of the line of David, would sit on the throne forever. Who is that? That's the Messiah, Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ returns, he will be king forever. People may reject him, and as a course of that rejection, go to hell, but that doesn't change the fact that Jesus Christ is king for all time. Forever. So... I see that all coming out of this covenantal promise and God keeping this covenantal promise. Saying, no, okay, I'm going to take care. The nation of Israel will stay my people. Moses, he wins a battle against pride, right? Wouldn't, he, wouldn't it feel you with pride to think, well, God come to you and say, well, I'm going to start all over with you. Wipe out everyone else in the world and I'm going to start over with you. But Moses passes the test. And he's able to move forward, fulfilling a role of intercession, right? He's interceding for the people. He goes on and says, Now Moses turned and went down the mountain, and the two tablets of the testimony were in his hands. The tablets were written on both sides. On one side and on the other side, they were written. That should stick out in your mind. Written on the front and the back. We hear that again later on in Revelation chapter 5 when we look at the scroll sealed with seven seals and written how? On the front and on the back. The only thing we see written this way 
which, that which redeems and that which condemns. The scroll redeems, the law condemns. That's what's brought out. The point brought out in Revelation chapter 5, the point brought out here. The law condemns, the scroll redeems. What would be written on the back of a title deed was what was required to redeem whatever, that land. In this case, in Revelation chapter 5, the earth. Now the tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God, engraved on the tablets. Now when Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there is a noise of war in the camp. But Moses said, it's not the noise of the shout of victory, nor the noise of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing I hear. We had a men's retreat several years ago. Pastor Gerald always tells this story when he gets to this, so it reminds me of it. We had a men's retreat in Sky Valley, and Pastor Gerald used to take this hike that would go to the top of a mountain where they had this cross. So Pastor Gerald takes a group of guys up this hike to the top of this mountain. Now, while he's away, they had these devious people that were part of the men's group. I'm sure you find that hard to believe, but... Nonetheless, they were there, and while Pastor Gerald went up on the mountain, they built a little golden calf in the grass. And when Pastor Gerald came down, they had Born to be Wild playing, and they were all dancing around this golden calf as he comes down the mountain. Well, that's not quite what we have going on here, but that's the concept. Moses says, I hear him singing. It's not battle, it's not war, they're singing. So it was as soon as he came near the camp and he saw the calf and the dancing. So Moses' anger became hot and he cast the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. What does that symbolize? A broken relationship with God. Sin breaks our relationship with God. It separates us from him. And so he breaks those tablets. Why? If he doesn't break the tablets, what do, what do the tablets say should happen to the people that are worshiping this false idol and dancing around in worship? They should die. What does the law do? The law kills. Moses breaks the tablets in anger. Why? Because their relationship with God symbolically has been broken. And he took the calf that they had made and he burned it in the fire and he ground it into powder and he scattered it on the water and he made the children of Israel drink it. So the children of Israel ate the golden calf or more literally drank the golden calf. And Moses said to Aaron, what did the people do to you that you have brought so great a sin upon them? Aaron, what are you thinking? What did, they had to have done something to you for you to be willing to do this. So Aaron said, do not, let your anger, do not let the anger of my Lord become hot. You know these people, they're set on evil. Now look at the difference between Aaron's attitude and Moses's. When God offers Moses the opportunity, Moses wants the people still in God's hands. When Aaron has an opportunity to take responsibility for his own actions, he, like Adam before him and Eve, he's going to find someone to blame. One of the key things that we want to pull out of this, that we want to just slide out of the scripture here, is that whenever you're in a position of authority, one of the things that should mark that position of authority is your willingness to take responsibility for what you do. And so... 
Aaron could never be, he could never be the leader. He could never be the one that was out in front. Because he's the one who's going to be looking for an excuse. Now Aaron's going to fulfill his role as a number two fine for Moses. But Moses, the difference between Moses and Aaron is Moses is willing to do the things that he don't like to do. And that's what being in a position of authority is all about. Sometimes you got to do the things you don't like to do, the unpleasant things. Everybody likes, or everybody that I know of, who is in a position to pastor loves to teach. We all love to teach. We love to study. We love to get into God's word. But you know, there are a lot of responsibilities that aren't a part of that, that, that we don't necessarily love. Part of leadership is being willing to do the hard things, to deal with the hard issues, to sit down and have to tell people, hey, I'm sorry, your time here is, is over. You know, you are the weakest link. Goodbye. To do the things that need to be done. That falls on leadership. And it has to be accepted. It's never liked. Nobody goes, woohoo, that's my favorite part. But it has to be accepted that this is part of that role. That wasn't in Aaron's heart. That wasn't where Aaron was. Aaron was ready to blame the people. It's the people's fault. They're evil. You know how they are. Verse 23, For they said to me, Make us gods that will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. And I said to them, well, whoever has any gold, break it off. And they gave it to me, and I threw it in the fire, and the calf came out. Man, we, we have lame stories like that too. I had more of them when I was a kid. And my dad would catch me doing something I shouldn't have been doing. I would sound like Aaron. Well, I just did this, and it just happened. I don't know. But son, when I gave you the car, there was no dent in it. But I don't know, Dad. I just parked in the parking lot. And it just got, somebody must have run into it. I took my dad's car, four by him. I jumped a Ford Fairmont higher than the makers of Ford Fairmont ever thought that you could jump that car. We took it out into the mud, into the dirt, and we played chicken. Me and my buddies would drive at each other to see who would turn at the last minute. And one time, we both turned the same way. That's not going to come out very good. So I cranked on the wheel even harder. I hit this big old giant hole in the, in the ground. And I bounced out that hole. And, and the, the car looked like it had been on the Dukes of Hazard when I brought it home. I don't know, Dad. I just took it. That's how it, isn't that how it looked? No, son. It wasn't like that. He caught me in the lie when he went and looked underneath. Because underneath of the car was so packed with dirt that he couldn't even see the engine. And the heat of the engine had baked that dirt into a hard clay. I would have killed Yeah, yeah. I don't know how I lived through a lot of the things I lived through. A dad found a good job for me cleaning the dirt out from underneath that fine Ford Fairmont. We can all come up with these silly little lies, and that's what Aaron did. Hey, I don't know, I threw the gold in, and poof, out came a golden calf. Just popped out. Now, when Moses saw that the people were unrestrained, by the way, this is important to understand, that word unrestrained in the original language means that they were naked. For Aaron had not restrained them to their shame among their enemies. 
So the people were dancing naked around the golden calf, and it was Aaron's idea. Way to go, Aaron. Shining moment, as I said, for Aaron. And Moses stood in the entrance of the camp, and he said, Whoever is on the Lord's side, come to me. So he's going to make a division right now. Moses comes down and says, Hey, this is what we got. This isn't happening. So you need to decide who is on the Lord's side. We're going to deal with this issue. Now the bottom line is the issue wasn't through all the people. It wasn't all one million of the people that had this idea in their heart. What do we know about things like this? We know it always starts with a few. A few that the, the many will just follow like sheep, right? That's why Jesus says, like sheep, we have gone astray. Each of us will follow whoever comes in the way. Moses was gone. They follow this other leadership. Moses has got to get that leadership out. He's got to pull out the leaven. He's got to take out the sin. Jesus said, if your right hand offends you, cut it off. Better that you enter into heaven maimed than the, that you enter into the fires of hell whole. The concept is the same. Hey, we need, to, we need to take out the part of the people that are causing, that are a part of causing all this to take place. So, Moses stood in the entrance of the camp and said, Whoever's on the Lord's side, come to me. One group, all the sons of Levi, gathered themselves together to him. From this moment on, Levi becomes a priesthood. Prior to this moment, the priests of the family were the firstborn. At this moment, the, the family of priests becomes Levi. Levi, who at one time was known for having a bad temper, getting together with Simeon, his brother, and, and slaughtering the men that had raped their, their sister after they had done what was required of them to make peace with the family. So, uh, Jacob, when looking at his children and making the, the prophecies over his kid, he said, I don't know if I could ever trust Levi. And certainly don't put Levi and Simeon together. They need to be apart. They do bad things when they're together. So Levi is going to step forward. Levi, the tribe of Levi, the sons of Levi, are willing to do the unpopular thing to make things right. And it's a requirement of leadership. To be willing to do what doesn't make you popular. So the tribe of Levi answers the call. And it's no different today, yesterday, or tomorrow. Who is on the Lord's side? If you're on the Lord's side, make your mark in the sand. Don't try to live in some kind of top secret Christianity where nobody's going to know where you are, where your allegiance lies. Make yourself known. If you're on the Lord's side, stand with him. And in this case, you got Moses and the sons of Levi that gathered to them. So he said to them, this says, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Let every man put his sword on his side and go in and out from entrance to entrance throughout the camp. Let every man kill his brother, every man his companion, every man his neighbor. So the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses, and about 3,000 men of the people fell that day. 3,000 people die. As the tribe of Levi or as the sons of Levi go through, the Lord's going to direct them to the ones within the camp that were part of that rebellion, and they're going to cut that rebellion out. So that the rest 
the 1.5 or 2 million people are not going to be infected by what was already infecting the 3,000. So God is going to cut those 3,000 out. And I don't want you to miss the picture. The day the law came to the nation of Israel, what happened? 3,000 people died. The day the church was born and grace was proclaimed, how many people were saved? 3,000. Exactly the same. 3,000 died when the law came. 3,000 were saved when grace was proclaimed on the day of Pentecost. So as we see, we see the picture. What does the Bible tell us law does? Law kills. What is it that grace does? Grace saves. We're saved by grace through faith. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. So they're going to go through and 3,000 men will fall that day. And Moses said, consecrate yourselves today to the Lord that he may bestow on you a blessing for this day for every man has opposed his son or his brother. What's he saying? Choose this day who you're going to serve. And if you're not going to serve the Lord, if you're not on the Lord's side, then get out. But if you're on the Lord's side, then be that. And if that means you stand against father, brother, mother, sister, so be it. What did Jesus say? Don't think that I came to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. For father will be against son, daughter and mother, son and father-in-law, and all the different aspects that Jesus lays out for us. Why? Because the enemies of you will be the enemies in your own house. Because when you proclaim Jesus Christ, it is making a statement and people that are not for him, they're gonna, you're going to have a problem telling who's for him and who's against him. When you make that decision, when you stand for Christ, there will be those who are going to come against you, that will come against him. There will be members of your own family, brothers, sisters, all of us probably at one time or another in our relationship with God have experienced the, the negative attitude through people in our own families toward us being saved. Walking with the Lord. I remember one time my father, who was a pastor, said that it was just a passing phase and I would, I would work my way through it. So I don't know what that means, but it's been an awful long time now since he said that. That, that attitude that they have when you make a decision, I'm standing for the Lord. I'm going to do what God has called me to do. I'm going to be who God has called me to be. And whatever happens, happens. And that's what's taking place here with the children of Israel. They're making that delineation. They're making that mark in the sand. They're saying, hey man, I am for the Lord. I am for the Lord. And so what Moses is saying is, hey, choose who you're going to serve and realize what that means. That's going to separate you from some members of your own family. Now it came to pass on the next day that Moses said to the people, you have committed a great sin. So now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. The atonement. Remember when God gave the law, what did he give them as soon as he gave them the law? The sin sacrifice. The offerings that would take place when the people failed. Not if they failed, when they failed. What's the point of of all that? Listen, in our relationship with Jesus Christ, in our relationship with Him, we make a choice that says, I am with Him, I'm standing with Him, but it doesn't make me perfect. 
I'm going to fail. I need washed completely head to toe one time in salvation. Then I'm justified. From that point forward, my feet need washed. I need to wash the parts of my body. They get dirty. I need to confess my sin and be cleansed of all unrighteousness. The point is, I may stumble, I may fall, I may mess up, but I'm headed towards Jesus Christ. And I agree with him that these things in my life are wrong and I need to be repentant of those. And that's what's required for a sacrifice to be of any effect. Why would you offer a sacrifice if you didn't think there's anything wrong with what you're doing? So Moses is going to go try to provide an atonement. Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, Oh, these people have committed a great sin. And have made for themselves a God of gold. Yet now if you will forgive their sin. But if not, blot me out of your book which you have written. That is the heart of intercessory prayer. You're only going to hear something like that one other time. Paul would say in the New Testament, I would that I would be accursed, anathema for the nation of Israel. Paul's desire was he would trade, he couldn't, but he would trade his salvation if the nation of Israel would be able to be saved. That's heart. I bet Aaron wasn't offering that prayer. But Moses' heart was a heart of interceding for the very people that are going to complain their entire existence about him. But he intercedes. He becomes for you and I a picture of another one who was rejected and hated, despised, a man of sorrow and acquainted with grief. But the Bible says Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father and he lives to ever make intercession for us. Jesus prays for us just like that. The only difference between Moses and Jesus is Jesus can back it up, right? He did sacrifice himself that we might be saved so he provides that picture and that's what intercessory prayer is supposed to be about he wants god to forgive the people he wants god to receive the people in chapter 33 and and 34 god's going to lay out this this incredible concept as he deals now next with the test of the people and he offers them the land without god He offers them something without him. So Moses is coming to the Lord. Lord, will you forgive? If not, blot my name out of your book. Now this is where a lot of people get the idea that the Lamb's book of life has everyone's name in it. From inception, their names are written. And only upon their utter rejection of salvation in Jesus Christ is their name blotted out. Whether or not we can make that claim or not, this is the only place where you're going to find uh, a scripture that indicates even the possibility of blotting out the name. So some people build that concept out of that. That the, the Lamb's Book of Life contains everyone's name and it's blotted out when folks reject the Lord. Now the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I'll blot him out of the book. You see? Now therefore, go lead the people to the place which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel will go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit for punishment, I will visit punishment upon them for their sin. 
So the Lord plagued the people because of what they did with the calf that Aaron made. So God knew who made the calf, right? The Lord plagued the people. Oftentimes when we read scripture like this, we start thinking, well, gosh, why has it got to be like that? God, why do you have to plague the people? I mean, Aaron did this. Do you know one of the things we cannot ever get away from is that your sin affects more than you. Your failure, your falling does not stop with you. If you have a family, it affects your children, it affects your, your husband or your wife. It affects your friends. It affects the people who know you, the people who see you. Many people are affected by one person's sin. And so by Aaron's failure, thousands, arguably a million people are affected by his decision. So how much more important is it for us to to hold on to what is written for us in the Proverbs, to trust in the Lord with all our heart? To not lean into our own understanding. So if we don't lean into our own understanding, where do we lean? Into His. In all our ways, acknowledge Him. What happens in Aaron? What's different in Aaron's life if when he's presented with his issue with the people, rather than folding, he cries out to the Lord and says, God, what should I do? Is God going to direct him or are you just going to leave him on his own? If he would... If he would allow, if he would lean, if he would reach out, God would answer. For you and I today, we're not like like Aaron and Moses where God has to speak to us. We have God's word right here. Hebrews 1 tells us, God who at various times and in various places has spoken to us through the prophets, has spoken to us in these last days. How? Through his son. God finished what he has to say. It's right here. You open up God's word and it will direct your choice. You might not like what it says, but it will direct your choice. It will guide you. You pray, God, show me, lead me, help me understand what to do. And he will give it to you. But our sin, our failure, it's going to affect more people than just us. And so God plagued the people. What else does this tell us? Ladies and gentlemen, this will never not be true. You and I draw closer to God in the furnace of affliction than we do in the days of bright happenings. When things are going good, when life is straight and narrow and flat ground and and everything's working out, God becomes a by-thought. When we're going in the furnace of affliction and the heat is cranked up and the storm is raging and the waves are high, where are we? On our knees calling out for the Lord. God knows that. We got to get out of the mindset that God's responsibility to us is to make sure that we have a happy, good life where everything just is tied up with a bow and it all makes sense. And realize God's primary goal with us, one goal, to get you home with him. And he's going to do whatever he needs to do to make that happen. He'll do that in your life, in your family's life, in your friend's life, in other people's life. Whatever God needs to do to get you home, that's going to be his goal. About a little over a year ago, friends of ours who have one son, and he was in a motorcycle accident a little over a year ago. He had something like 16 fractures in his skull. Was horror. I mean, should never lived. Should never have lived. 
months in the ICU, months in the hospital, comes out of the hospital, and he's doing okay. But through that accident, through the things that took place, he gives his life to the Lord. He rededicates himself to God. He, he really wants to do better. He doesn't want to fall away. And then about a year later, just a few days ago, he has a seizure, and he dies. He goes to the hospital. From the moment he had his seizure, no more brain function at all. He looked like everything was going to be fine. And then just like that, God took him. And everybody wants to say, why? What? God, why? Why didn't you just take him in the first place? But I'll tell you why. He wasn't ready to go home. And now he is. And God's goal is to get him home with him forever. Eternity with God is far more greater weight of glory than anything good we're going to have here on this earth. So when we face those things, we've got to trust him. Did the Lord plague the people? Sure he did. What happened when he plagued the people? They drew closer to him. And when the people are tested in the next couple of chapters, they're going to make the right choice. Because the furnace of affliction causes us to go near to God. It's not a question about about you know, being harsh or angry. It's a question of realizing your own creation. And we need to recognize that in ourselves. Because when things are the worst for me, I'm closer to God than any other time. That's just how we're made. It's, it's the way we function. And we need to recognize that that's not God's hatred that allows those things to happen in our lives. But it's the love of God. Because God wants us to make it home. Amen? Amen. Amen. Why don't we stand? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we do thank you so much for this time that we can come study your word. Thank you for the book of Exodus. I thank you for the fact, God, that we can see you moving then as now. We can see you teaching and instructing us. We see your wisdom throughout your word. Father, you tell us that your word will will give to us what we need to help us grow, to help us make good decisions, to help us walk with you all the days of our life to help us refrain from sin. All those things are in your word. Father, I thank you that we're willing to come before you and study. I thank you that we're willing to apply your word to our hearts and to our lives. I thank you that we're willing to say, God, in here is the answers that I need. And so, Father, teach me, help me grow, help me know. Lord, we pray, even for this body, as we know, there are Bezalels here and Aheliabs and and people that are called to lead and people that are called to be seconds and people that are called to follow and fill in the gaps. And when we all function together, man, everything works. But the key to functioning together is the tabernacle has to be in the center. Jesus Christ is the center of everything we do. So, Lord, I just pray, God, as we come before you, as we study, as we move forward in this place, as we face a new year, Father, that we would remember the main thing is our relationship with you. And are we drawing closer to you today than yesterday? Are we looking for your return? Are we we considering you in every day that this is a day that, that the Lord has made, that this is an opportunity for me to meet you? And I don't want to be found making a golden calf. I don't want to be found making a mistake. I don't want to be found falling. I want to be found full on, full throttle, living for you with everything that I have. 
So Lord, we pray, God, that that would be our heart, that your spirit would move among your people, that you would do that perfect work in our lives, that we would draw near to you, whatever it takes. And when it's all said and done, Father, and we're in glory and we're standing beside you at the throne, singing holy, holy, holy is at the top of our lungs, singing the song of the redeemed and proclaiming all of your goodness, none of us is going to say that it wasn't worth it. None of us will be sorry, but we will have joy inexpressible. Oh God, we look forward to that day. Until that time, give us what we need. Give us this day our daily bread. Carry us through as we seek to honor you with all we do. And we give you the praise and the glory for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.